We're continuing our discussion of Christ in you. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And today we want to pick it up from John 17, moving forward. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus says the following, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So you know Jesus is praying for us, present-day believers in Christ, through the words of the ones who were with him in that time. That they all may be one, he said, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Then he goes on to say, And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In the statement, that you also may be in us, that you may be in us in the manner in which, or rather that they may be in us in the manner in which you are in me, is the key and operative consideration here. The mind of Christ is only available to those in whom Christ dwells. And that, of course, is by his Spirit. Now, the Father was in Christ. Christ was in the Father. And his prayer, the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we may be in him. And therefore, with us being in him and the Father being in him, in the same manner in which the Father is in him and he is in the Father, if we are in him, then we are also in the Father in that identical manner. The key here is to understand that the mind of Christ remains in the body of Christ. It is not something else. It's not accessible external to Christ. It is only accessible by reference to the person of Christ himself. So whoever is in Christ has access to the mind of Christ and has access to the Father in the person of Christ. Now, none of this should be surprising because this is what Jesus has said all along. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is no other, no other access. This is not about a variety of roads leading to God, as some might suggest. Because 
it is a suggest that is a suggestion that an access to God is to be defined as being able to talk to God anytime anyone wants to, and moreover, to talk to God in any manner in which one defines who God is. God, you see, is always to be described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that regard, the relationship to God is exclusively accessible through Christ. Now, I understand that in the world of religion and uh, in the politics especially of religion, where people are trying to get everybody to get along, it will not do to alienate people in the world by suggesting that however they view God and whatever, by whatever means they hope to access God, that it is their choice to determine. Of course, if our gospel is political and if our gospel is motivated by a desire, say, for world peace, then alienating people by suggesting that the God that they serve being not God described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you suggest that's not God, then you'll have them, you'll have anybody, Hindus who have 30,000 gods, um, you know, Muslims who have uh, a prophet, uh, they recognize Jesus as a prophet, but not as the exclusive access to God. Or the Jews who do not consider Christ the Messiah, you're going to alienate all these people. You see, when, when you do not view the matter through these lenses, then you have to try to cobble together some commonality among human beings uh, that produces results that we want as the very basis of this inquiry. The results we would want, like I said, is, to be, is for nations to get along. Or the results we would like is to be able to trade with other nations. And the, the quickest, easiest, and most definitive way to offend people is by reference to whomever they view as God and whatever they view as the object of their worship. So you must understand that. I understand that. And I understand saying things as plainly as I have, and as I have just done a moment ago, yes, that the backlash would be, well, you're bigoted, or you're a hater, or whatever the nasty terms would be. Well, frankly, I don't care. Because I'm not interested, I'm not a politician trying to achieve world peace. I happen to believe that no peace is possible amongst men, amongst humankind, apart from those same humans being first reconciled to God and then to one another. 
Reconciliation to God is an exclusive, uh, is exclusively through the person of Christ, because it recognizes that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is no atonement for sin except in the blood of Christ. Now, that's just true. You don't have to hate anybody. In fact, I don't see how you could uh, wildly acclaim uh, or accuse people of being haters if they're telling you the very thing you have not considered. People are born into, usually born into the religions that they choose, and it's it's uh, inextricable from their culture, it's inextricable from their histories, and so on. Even Christian religion, such as Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, and, and, and such, they have woven themselves firmly into the fabric of people's national identities. So a relationship to God on the level of access to God through in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that as a son of God, that's not what these religious mindsets are about. They're about, the, in a sense, the God of your family's choice, or the God of your historic choice, or the God of your national choice. That's what these things are. I know that, they know that, nobody can argue about these things. The only, the only uh, issue is, are we talking about access to the mind of God? And if that's what we're talking about, and are we talking about access to God as sons, then there's an exclusive form of that relationship, and there's not another form. Now, people are free to invent a God in their own image whether that image is uh, their histories or, or their cultures or their preferences. People are free to do that. I don't respect the truth of, or I don't respect what they consider to be the truth of that pursuit, although I do respect that as human beings, they have both natural and legal rights to decide what they want to believe. The thing I do not respect is the substance of what they believe. But as to whether or not as citizens they have the right uh, to believe what they wish to believe, of course they have that right. And should we create law and barriers in society to people being able to believe whatever they want to believe in terms of their faith in a, in a God? Of course not. Of course we should not. Of course, I understand that that has not been the history of Christianity, um, especially in the nexus of church and state. Uh, I understand that. It's time that we, well, maybe it's impossible that to, to, to come to a place where you could say what you understand to be true without being labeled as something nefarious. And perhaps there, are, there might come a time 
when we could have these discussions without the acrimony. But that's certainly not the climate we live in today. And I'm fully aware of the danger uh, that what I'm saying poses to the current mindsets. But again, I'm not running for office and um, uh, I'm, I'm confident that I'm hater of no one because I'm bound to a commandment that says, love one another as I have loved you, which means in the same manner in which God has loved me, so I am to love another. But I would maintain that if you firmly believe, if you actually believe anything to be true, and you, you, uh, you agree that something else that is opposed to it is, is, is also true, then you don't believe what you say you believe. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm okay with, with all of that being the current state of things. But in pursuit of the mind of Christ, I am saying that whoever is a son of God is meant to grow up into a mature relationship to God so that this mature son is an apt representation of God the Father. In much the same way that Jesus the mature, indeed the complete expression of God in human form allows us the closest possible understanding of and access to the mind of God. In John 17 then, as Jesus said, I'm not praying for those alone, uh, who are immediately who are immediately standing in front of him, but rather he said, "I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their words." You, Father, he says, he says, "You are in me, and I in you." Prior to that, he said, "That all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you." So he's describing the manner in which the relationship between the Father and the Son, between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is existent. He says, it is that you are in me and I am in you. And then he goes on to say, may they be one in this fashion, and may they be made perfect, so that the world may know that you have sent me and that you've loved them as you have loved me. This matter of being in Christ and Christ being in the Father, and conversely, the Father be in, being in Christ, and because we are in Christ, the Father is in us in that fashion, and we are in the Father in the same manner in which the Father is in Christ. It's, it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. All of that suggests 
this term in, being in, being in. Now, it's not possible for, or rather the only time in which it is possible for one person to be in another is when a mother is carrying her child. At that point, of course, the child is in the mother. The child is in the mother in, in the entirety of the child's being. That's given to us as a picture so that we may understand what is implied here about being in Christ. In order for this to be accomplished, however, we cannot be talking about the natural form of one being in another in the fashion I've just illustrated. It has to be spiritual, meaning that all of the entirety of your spiritual existence may be inserted into the person of Christ, where God the Father, who dwells in Christ, may meet with us on the common ground of who Christ is. Spirit is able to accommodate this dwelling in that regard. And therefore, the obvious conclusion to the question, what is the house of God? What is the dwelling place of God? For the word house there, oikos, is more of the reference to a family than it is to a building. The house of God is not an edifice to which people go, in which they sit and even sing praises to God. The house of God is the result of us being in Christ. Christ is the entrance into the family of God, the domain of God. All of who God is, is accessible by us when we are in Christ. And even as Christ, the body of Christ, is our dwelling place, God is the dwelling place of Christ and vice versa. Christ is the dwelling place of God. So the house of God receives and hosts the person of God the Father. That is why we say, that is why it is abundantly clear and quite apparent that the house of God is not a church building, a synagogue, a mosque, or any other edifice. Because the reference to being in Christ is this reference to being a component of the body of Christ dwelling upon the earth.
1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, speaks to this fact, where it says, analogizing to the human body, it says that the body is comprised of many members. And though all the parts are many, they form one body. So he says, uh, because I am not a hand, I am, not, am I not of the body? Or is it therefore, is the hand not of the body if it says so? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, he says, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the smelling be? And so on. In verse 18, he says, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he please. And if they were all one member, where would the whole body be? And if indeed there are many members, but indeed there are many members, and yet one body. In verse 12 that preceded that, he said, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of, of that one body being many are one body, so it is with Christ. So he uses the analogy of the human body that contains many members, even though it's one body, and infers that one body acknowledges in truth or the truth that all the members form one body. And although it's one body, it's clearly comprised of many members. And then he tells us that this is, an, this is an analogy to the body of Christ. After which then in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, he goes on to say, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink of the one Spirit. And then he goes on, then he reiterates what he says. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. All right, now then, so an appropriate and apt analogy to the house of God is the body of Christ. They're one and the same, just different metaphors to describe different functions. If we're speaking about the assembled body of Christ, then the metaphor of parts and a body is appropriate. If we're speaking of the sons of God, and you notice I don't say sons and daughters, because we're not referring here to human families in which they're sons and daughters. The description of a son in the house of God is that the son is an heir. And the context that speaks to that says, we are the heirs of God, irrespective of being male or female, bond or free, Jew or Greek. So there's no relevance when we're discussing the body of Christ. There's no relevance to maleness or femaleness as it regards God as our Father, as it regards one another, fellow members of the body, of course. Uh, there's every relevance to male and female. But if the issue is that 
of our relationship to God the Father as sons, then there is no relevant, there's no more relevance to being black or white as there is to being a male or a female as it is to your social or ethnic status. Much could be said in furtherance of that point. I'll say it in summary in a blunt assessment. Anyone who considers the matter of a person's race or gender or ethnicity in terms of whether or not and how they might fit in the body of Christ is patently foolish. Now, do large numbers of people uh, take those factors into primary account? Of course they do. This means there are a lot of foolish people. Anyone who truly knows God will never consider as a condition of sonship one's race, one's ethnicity, uh, one's gender. You simply will not because they're not relevant. I am amused that there is so much discussion in the world today about gender because it's all about a human identity. When you're speaking of a divine identity, all of that is irrelevant. But usually this is not a discussion that is about the body of Christ, although some would attempt to make it so. Their attempts are simply further extensions of uh, understanding everything according to fleshly imperatives and not from the point of view of God. Now, the mind of God is in Christ. And whoever is assigned to or assembled to or been received within the body of Christ has access to the mind of God. Again, in, in reference to John 17, uh, 21b up to 23, you, Father, are in me, I am in you, they also may be one in us. And here is why, that the world may believe that you sent me and that you love them, you have loved them as you have loved me. It is in the corpus of Christ that the message of God's love for mankind is accessible. And apart from Christ, that message is not accessible because it's not a message of words alone in fact, the words alone are pretty shallow and pretty pointless. It is in the demonstration of the symphonic uh, coexistence of all the members with the harmonious uh, um, orchestration of this body of Christ that everyone understands, not just that we can get along. That's the gospel according to Rodney King. No, it's not that. It's that we're one. We're one. And no more than the hand could say, I don't need the eye. 
No more can members of the body of Christ deny the value of the one to the other. A body that is only one eye is intrinsically, it's obviously deficient in every other sense. And that would be a pretty, pretty sad body. In fact, it'd be inconceivable. It couldn't be considered a body because by definition, the term body, the Latin term corpus, from which you get the English word corpse, references a whole body. And implicit in that reference is the fact that all the parts symbiotically exist for the benefit of each of the parts. Now I want to, I want to come back and focus on uh, the house of God being the body of Christ. John, previously in John, uh, Jesus was talking about John 14, in my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, he said. And concerning the father and access to the father, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the father except through me. Now, uh, and then he moves on into where I want to go with this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Because in that illustration of vine and branches, he wishes to explain what he's saying about uh, the way, the truth, and the life. But he says in the Father's house, let's go back to 14 verse 2. In the Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. When I was growing up, I saw in my Sunday school, I saw many pictures attempting to depict the Father's house. And they were all pictures about the human imagination, about what heaven might look like. As I grew older, I became familiar with songs that all talked about uh, mansions in heaven. And I've come to see that even now in the present time, people comfort one another, especially at funerals and memorial services. They comfort one another with this same notion of the Father's house. Now, it very much uh, is a religious doctrine, one propagated by the Roman Catholics, about heaven being the house of God and the kingdom of heaven being uh, 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 the structure of heaven itself. And that one day, Jesus will return to set up this heavenly kingdom upon the earth. The fact is that the kingdom of heaven 
the word kingdom of heaven, kingdom in particular, is a word that references a foundation or basis of power and rule. So kingdom is a reference to authority. Kingdom of heaven, therefore, is a reference to an authority derived from the throne of God by which all aspects of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, functions. That has been conflated with mansions in heaven. And so, you know, there's songs like, um, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that fair land where we never, where we never will grow old. Uh, so eventually we'll go to walk on streets of gold and live in mansions. Well, yeah, I mean, I can understand if the choice is between a mansion in heaven and a double wide, uh, you'd prefer a mansion. But these are just sentimental, nonsensical things. They're not true. Heaven, for example, is not the abode of human bodies. We leave those behind in graves in the earth while, we, while our spirits and souls go to heaven. You don't need shelter in the way we think of earthly shelters in heaven because the, the environment of heaven believe it or not, is not the same as the environment of earth. And yet that's what we extrapolate to. And that's why these simplistic and frankly patently foolish perspectives have stuck as well as they have. We want to migrate to heaven where all of our earthly life's deficiencies are remedied in a fashion that is like the earth, except that it's the earth without pain, without suffering, without trials, an earth with appropriate dining facilities and food and housing facilities and garments and street repairs and all the rest of it. And it's simply, it's simply bogus. It's a, it's a view of the realm of heaven from a mindset that is entirely carnal, entirely of this world. I think many people are being disappointed and one of the reasons people do not want to accept these things as true is because they have such an investment in this emotional diatribe. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in heaven. But I don't believe in heaven as popularly depicted because heaven is the abode of the human spirit and soul. Heaven is not the abode of the human carnal body. Now then, In my father's house there are many mansions, 
First of all, this is not the picture, what we've been talking about. This is not the picture. The picture of the father's house, again, is not streets of gold and, and all good things that the earth did not have. The father's house is the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is in both heaven and earth because the body of Christ is the form of the receiving and the assembling of everyone who has been saved. That is why the Spirit of God adds you to the body of Christ. In the manner of, let them be one, you are in me, I am in you, let them be one in us. In the manner of that, the, the house of God then is the assembled body of Christ. And because it is, because it's the oikos of God, it is not a reference to any structure built by human beings. You know, I, I have heard so many times over the years, people get up in the pulpit and tell others they really do need to know how to behave themselves in the house of God. And what they mean is, Kids shouldn't be running in some part of the building called the sanctuary. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't believe kids should be running and being disorderly uh, anytime there's a gathering of adults uh, and children. I believe kids ought to be taught to behave. But that they would be offending God by, quote, running in the sanctuary. Um, no, that's a whole different thing. Um, socializing children is different from what the what the body of Christ is and there is no God does not dwell in anybody's sanctuary in any in any church building there's not a church building on this planet including the Vatican including Westminster Abbey. There is no dwelling place for God upon the planet except in the temple he made for himself, which is the body of Christ and our, our members, our bodies in particular. The rest of it is just bogus. But if all of your emphasis is on making these structures, creating these structures, you're going to have to find some way to justify these, uh, these expenditures. And frankly, the idea of this is borrowed in its, in its entirety from the Old Testament and from pagan societies as well. In the Old Testament, there was a temple. It had several iterations. 
since it was built first by Solomon and destroyed and then rebuilt and so on. And there clearly was a dedication of this temple to God, both upon its first completion and upon its restoration in the days of Ezra and its further restoration uh, in the early portions of the New Testament. But that's because God was still dealing with mankind in types and shadows and symbols. Buildings are not sacred. The only sacred dwelling place of God is the body of Christ. That's why we should not profane that temple. There are no mansions in heaven. There are no streets of gold. Because our spirit, to our spirit man, these things are irrelevant. However valuable they may be to the carnal mind, heaven is not obligated to accommodate the, the ruminations of the carnal mind. I have no great delight or pleasure in blowing up that mythology. Some people might, but it simply stands in the way of what is the true body of Christ. What is the true house of God? And more importantly, or as importantly, is what is accessible now in this earth, not on, not, you don't have to wait until you go to heaven, what is accessible now in this world through the dwelling place of God. And again, the dwelling place of God relates to let them be one in us. You are in me, I am in you. God is accessible in the person of Christ. God dwells in the person of Christ. You are in me. This is the only accommodation in creation worthy of God, and it's the only accommodation in creation capable of receiving the presence of God, the body of Christ. It doesn't matter how elaborate and intricate you make these structures. I mean, it's the assumption that the living God who made the universe and all of that he might be attracted to and moved by uh, our, the works of our hands. Uh, I read a post from a young preacher when the Notre Dame Cathedral <clears throat> burned. And the young preacher was doing his effort to make the case that the loss of Notre Dame was a spiritual tragedy. And underlying his case, he was saying that the care with which men, the craftsmen, built the original cathedral 
was a reflection of their dedication to God. And therefore, that conferred on it this sort of sanctity that made the loss of that edifice a religious or spiritual tragedy. Well, I hate to tell him this, but the, the entire value of this cathedral is its historic value and cultural value, especially, but not exclusively, to the French. So it was a loss for the French and a loss for people who viewed that central centerpiece of French culture to be a tremendous loss. And I, I can grant that in a moment. But a spiritual loss, I don't think hardly, because it never was that. And God is never impressed with the works of men's hands. Otherwise, why would he prohibit making graven images in the likeness of things above. Even if you make graven images of gold, precious stones, sure, you'd have a great investment in all of that. And it might, it might have the, the skill and craft of a Michelangelo. But that, that somehow, if it's a building, is sufficient to attract the living God, to come and take residence within it and confer his holy presence on it and thereby making the object holy so that the loss of it is some form of overwhelming spiritual or religious tragedy. Uh, now granted that it was a young man making these arguments um, and uh, sometimes young people simply want to be to say uh, things for the shock value. Um, most often, you know, these unfiltered views of, of things shows less or perhaps shows more the earnestness of the persons making these sayings than that they contain any measure of wisdom. We are pursuing accessing the mind of Christ. And I've made the point that in the statement, you are in me and I am in you, let them be one in us, that the meeting place of God and man, the meeting place of God and man is the body of Christ. And the definition of the house of God is exclusively that of the body of Christ. And because of that configuration, the body of Christ is the family of God. And this family exists in both heaven and earth simultaneously. You come into the house of God. You come into the body of Christ during your time here upon this, this earth. When you're no longer here upon this earth, 
It's because your body has released your spirit. The body is put into the dust. Your spirit and soul, as a righteous person, go to heaven. Heaven is the accommodation of the spirit and the soul. But the good news is heaven accommodating the, good, the, the, the soul and the spirit of the righteous is still the body of Christ. The family of God is in heaven just as it is on the earth. It's in Christ. So heaven shows a different picture of the assembled body of Christ. Our view of heaven, when heaven opens to us for viewing, is first and foremost of the centered authority of Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth being given to Christ. Even on the earth, you see, we are not in some the way we are in the body of Christ is by assembling through the Holy Spirit into families. Families headed by a father who is like God the Father. So the whole family of God spreads out across the entire earth. Obviously, a building cannot contain all of the body of Christ. There is no such building upon the earth. But the body of Christ is connected one to the other by the Spirit of God. So the reality of the body of Christ on the earth is exactly because it's spiritual and its vastness defies containment by any structure or form. It is by definition the body of Christ is by definition, by definition, a relational form that is invisible to the undiscerning eye and recognizable only by the culture of heaven that unifies the members of this body. And it's not typically recognizable by those who have no comprehension of the nature and character of Christ that is being replicated in his body. So it's an easier buy-in to think of the body of Christ as assembling in buildings in locations around the world. As we pursue in a little bit more minute detail how the body of Christ relates to Christ the head in order to have the mind of Christ. The analogy Christ gave us is that of a vine and branches. In John 15, so I've been spending time in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. In that uh, framework, John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me 
and my word will abide in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, my word will abide in you. And out of that, he will go on to say, in that condition, you may ask what you will, and it shall be granted unto you. But I don't want to go there just, just right now. I want to dwell on, I am the vine and you are the branches. So he uses an agricultural metaphor to show us how the mind of Christ is accessed and what it looks like when the mind of Christ has been accessed by us. In other words, you can know what's in the mind of Christ and therefore you can know what's in the mind of God. And it's, it's similar to, indeed it's the same as, the mind of your spirit. It's not the mind of your soul. I'll grant that immediately. In the manner of vine and branches, the fruit that is in the vine appears upon the branches. So the branches exist to give place for the intents of what's found in the vine. We as members of the body of Christ are like branches and he is the vine. And in that regard, he is the head. He is the rootstock. The nature of the vine is in him. If it's a grapevine, then he is the rootstock out of which uh, branches eventually come, upon which fruit is born. The fruit that appears on the vine is inextricably linked to the nature of the vine. So, just as one tree cannot bear any fruit other than what is mandated by the nature of the tree, so the vine, the fruit that is born on the vine, is mandated by the vine itself. Apart from me, then, you can do nothing. Vines and branches tend to be unaware of the distinctions between the two. They flow, form, and function in such perfect harmony, the vine uh, producing and the branches yielding their beings, their portions of the whole, the whole to accommodate the fruit that is already in the vine. It speaks of an intimacy that does not offer any measure of objection to the will that governs it. Just like the human body, 
governs in its entirety all of the parts of the body, just as the head gives direction and movement to every part of the body, so Christ gives direction and movement to every member of his body. And it should become a mature son is someone who has attained to that level of harmony and symmetry with the head, who is Christ, that he offers, he or she offers no objections to whatever Christ wishes to do in their persons and through their persons, in the fashion of vine and branches. You cannot imagine branches deciding that they have a mind independent of uh, the vine, so much so as to produce whatever fruit they wish, while fully expecting that the vine would agree that this very varied fruit is permissible and even appreciated. It is, it, but as absurd as that sounds, that is what it looks like when we offer, when we offer God, when we offer Christ service that he did not authorize. You hard press to find the church in which what Christ wishes to do is what they're doing. The whole planning of everything is not based upon that leading of the Spirit in that time, even in that moment. They take what pleases them and push it on, on the people call it the will of God. You know, you'll see these massive programs being hyped and presented to the people and everybody's getting excited about, you know, it's amazing how exciting or excited church people can routinely seem to be because everything is about you being excited. I'm excited about this, I'm excited about that. But rarely is that excitement because the people have heard from God. It's mostly that their souls have been stirred up to, quote, do something good for God. Many years ago, there was a very energetic preacher living here in Albuquerque. I think he moved eventually to Dallas. And I knew the man. I would be in meetings with him. And he was the consummate promoter you know, a rah-rah kind of fellow. And he'd always say something like, well, just let's do something great for God. You know, God deserves us doing something great for him. Let's show this town that God is alive here. God is the God over Albuquerque. Let's get together and do something great for God. 
varying forms of that promotional medley is what motivates people because they do not understand the metaphor of the vine and branches. The vine knows exactly what fruit it wishes to bear and when. The branches do not know because they're so connected to the vine that they offer absolutely no opinion or objection to the vine. As far as they're concerned, they exist for one reason and one reason only, to bear the fruit that is already in the vine. You can see that in this analogy, if you were to actually apply this analogy to the way things are done today, the preachers and the promoters substitute for the voice of Christ. What is being done is whatever you can promote. Now, in order to bear the fruit that is in the vine, you must, quote, abide in me. And when you do, his word will abide in you. You will bear the fruit, Jesus is saying, that actually reflects who I am. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Key things. We must remain, keep our feet in bounds, keep our, our feet in check with all that is of Christ. If we were to have done so, we would never have fallen into the disgrace into which so many in the church have fallen because they did not keep their feet in check. They strayed into the political arena and bore fruit that has, that has allowed them to become the subjects of ridicule for the world. The world needs to see what Christ is doing and what he's about. And when Christ is lifted up, there will be an integrity in the presentation of his word and what he's doing that will cause the earth to find solutions. But when the church becomes like the world and relies upon the power of organization and organized strength in lieu of the power that moves the things of God in the earth, the Holy Spirit, then we will always become the laughing stock of society, as we are now. But again, there's no concept of abiding in me and my words abiding in you. Hence, we don't have the word of Christ 
abiding, meaning finding its dwelling. An abode is where you dwell. To have his words abiding in you means the word of life dwells in you richly. It means it's if you open your mouth, what is dwelling in you will come out and be heard. And what is dwelling in you will be enacted in your person. This is how we actually have access to what God is saying, is to abide in him, meaning to abandon all other relationships which have any measure of opposition to the person of Christ in favor of, first and foremost, and as our priority, our relationship to Christ. Now that doesn't mean husbands divorce their wives who don't believe. That's not that's not the application. It is to say that whatever God wants of you as a husband, whatever God wants of, as, of you as a wife, you will give undistracted devotion and loyalty to that, even if it's offensive to the spouse or to your business partners and so on. And again, we're not talking about the manner in which you communicate these things. You can communicate spiritual truths in a patently offensive manner. Well, that's just the absence of wisdom. So these are not the digressions that you should be chasing after. Stay within the central thing that I'm trying to, to communicate. And that is to abide in Christ means that in your mind, there is no relationship that takes priority over your relationship to Christ. And if there is a constant and ongoing challenge posed by other relationships to your loyalty to Christ, then you have a choice to make as to what place of priority such things hold in you. And my hope would be that you will choose to abide in Christ. When you do, when that's your attitude, his words will abide in you. Here we are not talking just about scripture, but we're talking about him, he himself as the word. What he has said to you, for example what he has said to you will abide in you and it'll become the anchoring uh, that you hold to even if all of the external factors you're facing indicates that that position is foolish. Eventually, you're going to be proven to be correct. If his word abides in you, God will reveal the truth of what he has said to you through you 
to everyone. Now, what, where, where am I getting this? Well, it's very much the example of Jesus, isn't it? Who said, I only do what I see my father doing. Who said, the son can do nothing of himself, only what he sees the father doing. Who promised us that he would never leave us nor forsake us because he loves us in the same manner in which the Father loved him. The basis of all that Jesus knew and understood from God was that the Father loved the Son and showed the Son what the Father was doing. God's inevitability is that he cannot abandon or forsake whoever places their trust in him. He simply cannot. He simply cannot. He will show up. And when he does, it's his fruit born on your branches. He will, if you abide in him, the fruit of what he has said to you will inevitably appear where you are, on your branches. Now, I want to just hasten to conclude this by telling you that there are, if you abide in him, he abides in you, being possessors of his mind, knowing the mind of God, one of the main things that will happen is you will be able, by the word of God, to overthrow all the works of Satan. It's one of the first things you'll be able to do. Why? Because the power of Satan is the power of deception. He intends to and he will deceive you if you're being governed by your soul. He knows how to attract and capture the human's emotions. He knows what your family history has been in regards to various decisions. He knows the pattern of your culture derived from your family. He knows what trauma you might have suffered as far back as in the womb. He knows what emotions your soul attached to those traumas. And he knows that when things in your environment stir those emotions presently, he knows the pattern of your thoughts. He knows you will run the, the, the trap in exactly the way you've run it every other time before. So he'll set a trap for you on the absolute predictability of knowing what your inclinations are. That's how he catches you. That's how he catches people. If 
Satan cannot capture you in that way. He loses all of his power and influence over you and over the entire domain over which God has placed you. So when the mind of Christ is in you, one of the things you will do is you will overthrow the works of the devil within your domains. I have an entire series on this. It's called the Armor of God. And here I unpack how the soul works, the place of the enemy, how he captures the emotions of the soul, and how he subjugates sons of God by this process. But that's one of the things permissible. It's one of the things permissible when you have the mind of Christ. Another thing that is permissible when you have the mind of Christ is that you will love as God loves. And your purpose will be fulfilled in all of the relationships to which God assembles you. In this John 15, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Why is this a new commandment? Because it differs from the old in its essential principle. So what was the old? The old was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the standard of that commandment was you. This is what you should do. The new commandment is different because it changes the standard and makes it the same standard for God as it is for man. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. The standard now is not man, it's not yourself. The standard is God. It's the same standard for God as it is for man because it is God who in Christ dwells in you. He accesses your being because you have made yourself accessible by being assembled to the body of Christ and he dwells within the body of Christ. God does. So when God lives in Christ, if you are in Christ, God lives in you. To will and to do what pleases him. He cannot accept a different standard than himself. Therefore, in the central commandment that speaks to his divine nature, to his essential characteristic, namely that God is love, 
the definition of how you ought to love is, as I have loved you. It is inevitably the same standard for God as it is for you because it's God in you who is fulfilling this commandment in your circumstance. And it can't be a different standard. It cannot be your standard. For example, God cannot love your neighbor the way you love your neighbor. It has to be, you need to love the other as God loves you, not as you love your neighbor. The, the capability of man to love is limited by his understanding. The capability of God to love is complete because God is love. So that's the second thing you can do with the mind of Christ. The first thing you can do with the mind of Christ is you could rule over the domains of Satan. And the second thing is you can love as God loves. Because of that, the third thing that you can do is you can forgive men their sins. You can forgive the sins of others. This is as clear as the command in John 20, 21, where Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. In that sense, we are deputized. We are substituted in where Christ was, we now are, because this is his Father's house, place of many mansions many rooms, if you like. What God used to do in the days of Christ, through Christ, he now does through the body of Christ, which would be you and me and others like us, substituted in to the place of Christ. I am going to make room for you. Where I am, there you may be also. That's not about Jesus going to heaven to make mansions for us. That's about Jesus being complete in his obedience to the Father, being granted the right by the Father to collect from all the nations of the earth and to assemble into one body for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, a people for God's own habitation. That's the house of God. And in that capacity, the glory that Jesus had when he was here upon the earth now clothes that reality known as the body of Christ. The glory he had when he was here, he left that glory for us. That's what he said in John 17. The glory you have given to me, I have given to them. To sustain them, to inform them, to instruct them, to enable them. 
to carry out the mandate as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. That's why we need that same glory, because the work Jesus began is the only work we are left here to finish. It's the same work passed into our hands. That work included forgiving people their sins, which is the first thing you do when someone appeals to God to be liberated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. God sends an ambassador of this kingdom to declare the will of God concerning them. They're held in bondage by sin. If they're going to be liberated from the kingdom of darkness, their sins have to be forgiven. You don't forgive anybody's sins on account of anything you've done. No, your sins needed to be forgiven the same as mine, the same as everyone else's, by the blood of Christ. But that's exactly what it means to be an ambassador of the kingdom. It means to do what the Lord himself would have done and did do when he was here. An ambassador is not the king. An ambassador is an apt representation of the king. Just as Jesus was when he was on the earth and he would say, I only do what I see my father doing. It's the father living in me who is doing his work. Well, guess what? It's the same father who lived in Christ. The God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ is now also, the same one, is now also our father and he's living in us to finish the work he started with Christ. It'd be absurd to suggest that he would then arbitrarily and unilaterally limit what we can do in his name and by his authority when the work remains the same. The only limiter on it, really, is the level of maturity and therefore the level of authority that God will give us. But he expects us to grow from glory to glory, from strength to, str to strength on this journey. And as we progress, he gives us more of the scope of representation and ultimately it includes forgiving the trespasses of those who have appealed to God to be forgiven and delivered from the kingdom of darkness. You know, it's, what's interesting is there's, there are churches that claim that authority on the basis of an institutional position vis-a-vis -vis God. I have news for you. God has no relationship with any institution. You know why? Because he cannot. The only possible relationship between God and another is a relationship that exists spirit to spirit.
the Holy Spirit of God being connected to the spirit of man. No institution exists in reality. If it did, it would have a spirit with whom God may fellowship, and it would be a person who may be led by the Spirit of God. No, institutions are led by the will of men. But they're able to function as legal fictions and so conduct the affairs of men in a fashion removed from the persons themselves. It's called a corporiety or corporation. A corporation does not exist as an entity, as a living being. It only exists as a legal fiction because you could create realities out of legislative acts. And they may act as persons for the transacting of business. But if we're talking about the living God having fellowship with something, that thing has to have a spirit that came out of the person of God himself and is therefore compatible with the Spirit of God, spirit to spirit. Nothing else is capable of fellowshipping with God. And I don't care who is saying this, and I don't care how long they have said it, how many centuries, it's still wrong. And it will never be right. Now, it may, you can sell it to other humans, but you can never sell it to God because he knows with whom he may have fellowship. The power to forgive sins was conveyed to the body of Christ. It was not ever conveyed because it could never have been conveyed to an institution. And finally, the fourth thing you can do is in that relationship with God where you have the mind of Christ, you will know how to ask according to the will of God as opposed to how the immature asks of God. They ask for things they can consume upon their lust. So, when you hear preachers advocating that you send money to them and they'll pray for you to get a new car, a better job, a better husband or wife, or, or more material things, they are children themselves, consumed by their own lust, and they are drawing out your lust, and in the process, separating you from your finances. You know, it doesn't work, it never has worked. The only people who've gotten rich by this process are the ones promoting this message because the people who are hearing it desire what they're saying and think that this is the way to get it. 
and they're foolish. If this is the case, you know, the wealthy of the earth then are the most favored of God, whether or not they even believe in God. No, these things are simply not true. The mind of Christ if you possess the mind of Christ, you know what the will of God is. And whatever you ask is in furtherance of the will of God. That may well include material goods, circumstances, money, things. It may well include that. But these things have no purpose in and of themselves. Their purposes are as they enable the things of God to be done and accomplished. So in summary, here are four things that the mind of Christ will allow you to freely access with which you may have every expectation of God's response and that in a timely manner. Number one, you can actually rule over the activities of Satan within your domain. Number two, you can love as God loves and Christ will appear in you and through you and throughout your relationships. Number three, you can forgive sins because you will know whose sins God wishes to forgive and whose he wishes to retain. And number four, you will ask of God appropriately. I am Sam Solon. We'll continue to discuss the mind of Christ. I'll talk to you again. Peace and grace be with you. Bye now.